right, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Lydia and I'm a senior here at Press House. So to get started here, I want you all to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to picture yourself walking through a rainforest. It's dense and green and hot and sunny. You walk along this trail until you reach the end and then you step out onto a sandy beach. To your right is the ocean. The water is bright blue and the waves are crashing against the shore. That ocean flows into a river that is running just past your feet. And as you turn to the left, you watch that river flow through a tropical rainforest. Far in the distance, you see mountains, also covered in bright green foliage and shrouded in mist. You can all open your eyes. This may all seem like a dream, but it wasn't. I was there. I felt the breeze in my hair. I dipped my hand into that river, and I walked along that beach. Simply put, it's paradise. But at the other end of that trail is a neighborhood called Louisa. We drove through Louisa many times in our trip. In that instance, I rode not with my fellow Press House friends, but with a man named Juan. Juan is Puerto Rican and a US military veteran who helped and directed a lot of our work in Puerto Rico. Simply put, Juan is one of the most outspoken, passionate, and honest people I've ever met. As we drove through Louisa together, Juan explained that this area of the islands, um, the population is majority black. When the island's enslaved Africans were released, many settled in that area. Prior to their release, slaves took the name of their enslavers. As such, many people in Louisa share the same last name, but aren't in any way biologically related. As we drove to the beach, I looked out to the left side of the car at rows of houses. Many were brightly colored, painted in candy pinks and bright sky blues. Many were run down, bearing the scars of Hurricanes Maria and Fiona. Others were simply gone. You really don't want to be here at night, Juan said. He paused for a second, looked at me, and said, it's the ghetto. So we stopped the van right in front of a house where this trail was uh, led just past. But this house was not the brightly colored one-story houses in Louisa. It was at least three stories tall, a giant glass structure behind a very tall fence. So I asked Juan, they're building vacation homes in the ghetto. And Juan, who always had something to say, didn't offer more than a, yeah. He pulled to the side of the road again and pointed to a bright pink house. One of the last homes on the beach that hadn't been demolished and rebuilt into an expensive rental. It occupied a small strip of land on the shoreline. See that house, he said, that piece of property? easily worth a million dollars. As we pulled away, I couldn't help but wonder how long it would be until these multi-million dollar property values pushed the residents of Louisa out. How long would it be until those candy-colored houses are demolished, replaced by a crypto-millionaire and a glass monstrosity of a building, surrounded by a high barbed wire fence? Where will Louisa go? What will it become? How, where will its people live? What makes Louisa a paradise? And how much does it cost?
Hello, everyone. My name is Aurora. I'm a freshman here. Um, so the first day that we arrived at the work site, Margaret gave us a short tour of the facility that we would be involved with for the next few days. Techos Pamigentes had their main facility set up in a set of repurposed senior living apartments. Behind these apartments, they had planted a garden full of mostly produce like sweet potatoes, beans, and root vegetables called yuca. Uh, when we inquired about the gardens, Margaret told us that they were growing these crops because people in Puerto Rico could not depend on their local government nor the federal government to provide aid during a disaster. The gardens were meant to teach people how to raise their own crops so that they would have some insurance during disasters like Hurricane Maria. They even had some raised beds in progress so that elderly people could take part in this without bending over and hurting their backs. She told us that just after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico, all the ports were closed for three weeks and any food shipments were stopped in their tracks. What hit me the hardest was that when Lydia asked how they got food if the ports were closed, she said, we didn't, we starved. During a later discussion, Lydia said something I think all of us were thinking. How did I not know that? We were stunned. None of us had known. And sure, I knew about Hurricane Maria and about the lack of aid that Puerto Rico had faced, but I didn't, I don't think I ever thought about how that affected people on an individual basis. It never occurred to me that widespread starvation was happening right next door in a place our government was responsible for, and I was none the wiser. I didn't know because I'd never asked. This, for me, was the moment that I realized how important it was for us to ask hard questions on this trip. Later in the week, three others and I were working in those same gardens, and we had the chance to put this into practice. At the time, we were digging up yucca roots and had the chance to talk to an agriculture major working for Techos Pamigentes about her work. We learned that the yucca tree has thick edible roots that are a staple food in many countries and has a place in many traditional Puerto Rican dishes. More importantly, even if the top of these trees snap off during a storm, the edible roots will be fine. The same goes for the sweet potatoes that they were growing. We learned that almost every crop we harvested was hardy and resilient to harsh weather conditions, and most would grow year-round in Puerto Rico. The motivations behind her choice of crops became clear as we asked more questions. These plants were meant to weather a storm and prevent starvation. This reinforced what Margaret had told us earlier in the week and changed how I viewed food in Puerto Rico. I found myself wondering whether the banana trees I saw in someone's backyard had helped someone through starvation, or whether the coconuts on the beach had ever been a precious resource. By getting to know the people we were working with and the challenges they faced, my perspective changed, and the place that we were in gained new depth and substance. Everything felt more real. Hi, I am, I'm May. Uh, so, when I first got to Puerto Rico, I noticed a deep sense of pride from everyone there. And at first, I thought it was nationalism, a pride for one's country, for an ideal, uh, for a flag. And as an American, I can conceptualize nationalism. I mean, nationalism is such a deep-rooted part of our history and our culture as Americans. I get nationalism. But something about the word nationalism jambled me because it didn't seem to quite match up with what I was seeing. When we were in Puerto Rico, we went to the San Sebastian Festival. People were dancing in the street with Puerto Rican flags, and it seemed like every song I heard had the words Puerto Rico in them. Even after a long day of facing the island's hardships, 
It was effortless to get caught up in their joy, in the easy way people accepted us, how they took our hands to dance, their beautiful displays, and the way they were proud to share their culture with us. When I was there, Jazz asked me if I had ever experienced anything like this. And it took a second. And the best thing I could come up with was when the Bucks won the championship, where people were in the streets cheering and celebrating our win, or maybe the Badger tailgates, where I can't seem to escape the color red, or the full volume music, or the smell of beer. And I mean, nobody knows pride like Wisconsinites, right? I mean, think of cheeseheads. We know team spirit. But despite the way that we as Wisconsinites go all out for our teams, it didn't seem like an adequate comparison. There was something so special about that festival, about being in Puerto Rico, something I'd never experienced before. It took me a long time of working at Techos, listening to the people there to really start to understand. Juan talked to us about the island and the hurricanes, and we asked how many people leave when the hurricanes are coming. As a response to our question, Juan told us that he did everything he could to board a plane and come back to Puerto Rico, to be there for his people, to make sure that he was there to rebuild and to support. And that was a bit of a breakthrough for me. I mean, I definitely wouldn't watch a Badger game in a hurricane, and despite how much I care about the people here, I wouldn't brave a storm, a plane in a storm to come back to Madison. What Puerto Rico had was so much more than nationalism. What they had wasn't just pride in an intangible ideal, or a tool for selfish reward. It was love, a deep love for the island, for the people, for the land, for the culture. And it was a love for each other that made Techos possible, a love for people you don't even know, for people who are different from you. Despite the hardships, the political divide, people loved each other. And it's difficult to understand where this love come from, comes from, maybe a realization that we all need to depend on each other. As Americans, I find that love to be rare. We love our teams, our ideals, our possessions, our property, but our American nationalism doesn't accommodate love for each other. I think that we have a lot that we can learn from Puerto Rico and the ways they showed love to us as strangers and took us in. We can learn a lot from how they took the time to support each other and build a community. And I hope that the kind of love I learned there is something that I can take with me. Hi everyone, I'm Kevin. Um, during each night of the trip, a pair of us led a devotional on a chosen topic. Out of the topics Ni provided us beforehand, May and I chose the topic named The Great Commission and the Ethics of Christian Service. I had no idea what the Great Commission was, but the latter part of the topic was what intrigued me. I had never thought too deeply about the service trips that I would see people go on, and I thought it would be a good way to learn about new things and prepare myself before I went to Puerto Rico. As a person with no context on how the Great Commission had been used throughout history to justify colonialism, I simply began to analyze the text. With my Bible study mode on, I began to digest each word Jesus said. The Great Commission refers to a selection of passages in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus calls his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. As I usually do, I assumed the authority of this particular text in the Bible and planned out an entire speech on what it means to make disciples and what it might look like, drawing from as many passages I could find relating to it. 
What regrettably happened during this process was that I forgot the latter part of the topic, what actually intrigued me to choose it in the first place. I started to confine the work that we would be doing in Puerto Rico solely in the lens of the Great Commission, not comprehending, not comprehending the breadth of things to consider when discussing as complex a topic as Christian service. During our first devotional, I was struck by my shortcomings. Here I was, having written out an entire sermon on what the Great Commission was, without, one, acknowledging that it was a group discussion, and two, considering the Great Commission in the context of ethical Christian service. Devotionals led by others covered more contextually and geographically relevant topics, such as creation care, justice and complicity, and building community, which made me engage in both scripture and other readings that they provided more empathetically and holistically. So I made a last-minute decision to scrap 80% of what I prepared and let the group speak instead. I saw conversations flourishing, and though some opinions and ideas were quite uncomfortable for me to hear, I still sat and tried my best to listen. Throughout all the devotionals, I had to face challenges to what I originally imagined this trip would be like. What if telling the gospel isn't the, only, isn't the most effective way to spread the gospel? What if it is actually much more meaningful to deeply consider the situations of the people of Puerto Rico than to be sitting in a room immersed in scripture? What if doing justice to all the harm our ancestors have done to colonies like Puerto Rico is just to gently and lowly serve the people in whatever way possible? In many ways, these challenges that I faced was an extension of my experience at Press House. We have a culture of deeply appreciating complexity, whereas I tend to prefer forging out an answer to all questions. But through this trip, I saw the beauty of the unexplainable, unfathomable, and incomprehensible, and not only stop at its sight, but to do something about it. I realized that in the unknown is where God invites us to be curious and creative, and where we constantly work towards challenging our assumptions and stretching our empathy. Hi, I'm Maddie. Um, I'm a senior. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> I remembered being overwhelmed by smells and looking up to see locals, looking down at the crowd from their lit-up balconies. The 500-year-old architecture and historic cobblestone streets were comically and tastefully juxtaposed with the Coca-Cola-themed parade and a local band doing remixes of recent pop songs. Our group balanced our feet on street curbs and formed a chain link so as not to lose each other. But the most perplexing thing about the night of the festival wasn't the feeling of sweat falling from my forehead in the middle of January, or tripping over tortilla boxes while doing some version of the electric slide with a group of strangers. Not my best moment. It was the paradox of the expressed grief and hopelessness of those we talked to about Puerto Rico's current political status contrasted with the four-day epiphany celebration hosted in Old San Juan. I can't speak for the residents, but I think to them, the festival was the embodiment of using joy as resistance and celebration as catharsis. This celebration was explained to me as an annual event hosted as one of the biggest national festivals in Puerto Rico. We were told to prepare for traffic and long waits if we decide to go, and both promises were delivered. 
Three Kings Day and Epiphany are holidays that are largely the most celebrated in predominantly Catholic countries as a bookend to the Christmas season. The celebrations often align with when many think was the day that three magi, foreigners in a country unfamiliar to them, using a star as a compass, presented baby Jesus with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In Puerto Rico, the 12 days of Christmas would end almost a month after many in the rest of the world had put away their holiday decorations and went back to work. It would seem as though history was repeating itself, except this time we were the foreigners, and our star was a GPS telling us to take illegal left turns. It seems counterintuitive that residents of Puerto Rico would be in a celebrating mood, given the island's recent hurricane turmoil that our group was there to assist with, the political schisms in local and international affairs, and the U.S. Census reporting in the past year that over 40% of Puerto Ricans live below the poverty line. But Puerto Rican flags flew. Thousands of residents showed up to dance and hear music without inhibitions, and families chose to spend time with each other on a Thursday night, despite many having work the next morning and many miles to drive. Our group partook. We were celebrating our work week, my gratitude to be able to meet up with my friend Claudia that evening, and just enjoying each other's company. I generally don't like to force takeaways from experiences like these, experiences like these. But for me, this evening was a reminder to not look for cues to celebrate life and community. The time for joy is now, not some time in the distant future when we think our difficult circumstances will just go away. The entire area of Puerto Rico we were staying in was full of color, community, and nature. All things we can celebrate today as a reminder of the importance of radical hope. Now, before we come to the table, I think it will be worth it for us to just celebrate the stories that were just told. Um, one, because I know that there's always this awkward thing when someone tells a story, people are like, do I clap? Do I not clap? You don't know what to do. I saw a lot of like, so it's good to celebrate. These are good stories. These are good experiences. And like I said, um, take the time to ask more questions and, and hear the rest of the stories from the trip. Experiences like Break With a Purpose are fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, but one of the, I think, most challenging parts of a trip like this is that you have to come back, um, that the trip ends. And it can be really challenging to transition from a place like Puerto Rico, where it's 85 degrees and 80% humidity, uh, to a place like Madison, Wisconsin, where we landed and it was 17 degrees, and there was a fresh coating of snow on the ground to welcome us. Life doesn't stop when you go away for an experience like this. One of the other things that happened when we landed was that was the same day we learned of the shooting in Monterey Park in California. And many of us have been holding the weight of yet another mass shooting in a long line of mass shootings, and not fully knowing what to do, because it seems like this sort of thing happens again and again and again. And then this past week, uh, video footage of the shooting of Tyree Nichols hit the internet. And I know that I myself spent most of my week trying to avoid that footage, uh, because I had other stuff going on and I did not want to be distracted. It's really hard to live life in the midst of all of the other things that are happening in the world. 
it's really hard to integrate experiences like the ones that we had in Puerto Rico or to reconnect with your friends after a long winter break when all of these things are happening in the world. And I share all of that before we come to the table because the table is a moment that reminds me that Jesus and his disciples had similar experiences. The meal that we share together was one that they shared in the midst of a lot of stuff going on. Jesus shared this meal with his disciples the night before he was executed. This is something that he knew was coming. And yet, you still got to eat. And so he sat down with his disciples and he took a loaf of bread that was on the table. He gave thanks for it. And he broke it. He gave it to them to eat. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup that was on the table, he poured it out for them, he told them to take and drink, and once again, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knew there was a lot of shit about to hit the fan, and he still made sure that they paused to eat together. And I think that is a good reminder for us in these times that when life and the world gets as crazy as it is, that we should still stop to eat together. Every time we share this meal, we remember that Jesus spoke truth to power, ate with the outcast, and gave us a hope that goes even beyond now, some instructions about how we do communion at Prez House. So first, we practice communion by intinction, which means that when you come forward, either myself or I believe Maddie will tear off a piece of bread for you. And then you're invited to dip that piece of bread in the cup, if you so choose. The cup is grape juice rather than wine. We also practice open communion, which means that everyone is welcome to receive communion regardless of what you do or do not believe. And we practice open communion because we believe that this is God's table and God turns no one away. Now, in the spirit of the honesty that I have tried to hold in this moment, uh, I've had a long week and I realized when we got to the table to check in for worship that I did not write a prayer for communion. So we're just going to run right into this. Um, I'm going to invite the music team to come get their bread first and then they'll be able to go to their instruments and then the rest of you can come forward and receive communion. And since I didn't write a prayer, I want to invite you to hold this space with some silence and some reflection um, as we break bread together. <laughs> 